But today I only have a few things, a few quick things on the agenda. The first is to talk about success. Second is to talk about John the Baptist. The third is to talk about the categories we put ourselves and each other in. The fourth is to talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The fifth is to talk about repentance. What does that mean and how does that connect to everything else? And then the sixth and final note is if you look, if you're looking where to start, look to the end to know where to start. So we're going to talk first about success. How do you know if you've arrived? How do you know? What indicators? What indicators let a person know that they've made it? It's difficult to say because it's relative. It's relative from culture to culture. The poorest poor person in America would be mediumly wealthy compared to most nations in the world. If you make $30,000 a year or more, you're in the top 2% of the world's wealth. If you make $100,000 a year or more, you're in the top 0.01% of the world's wealth. Success varies, and our definitions are all over the place, and they change even in America according to the decade. What was successful in 1950 is different than what's considered successful now. But I'm proposing this. Whatever definition of success you came in with this morning, whatever image or vision that comes to your mind when you think he made it or she made it, I'm asking you to sweep that away. Sweep it completely away this morning because we need to replace it. We need to replace our definition of success. Now, John the Baptist was a man who understood success. John the Baptist was the ultimate hype man. Flavor Flav is a hype man for a public, public enemy. But John the Baptist is the ultimate hype man for something much bigger than a hip-hop movement, or a group. John the Baptist, from the time he was in the womb, was commissioned with the purpose of pointing people to success. How's that? He kicked in the womb because he knew his purpose. He was so filled up with the glory of God, with the purpose and the truth that Jesus Christ would bring. That even as he was being born, I'm sure, even as he could not speak with words, his little baby body was filled with the conviction that people must know about this Jesus, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. That's what it says. John the Baptist was not a wealthy man. In no way did he meet any of the criteria that his Judeo-Roman world would indicate to be successful. In no way he would be considered a hobo or a bum by our standards. He ate locusts and wild honey. He dressed like a very 
weird person. But all he did, every day of his life, from the moment he was born until the moment he was beheaded, was proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the need to submit to that kingdom. He did not tell people, you can become wealthy, you can become esteemed, you can become highly valued according to your culture. He did not tell people, you will become the greatest Jew that ever lived. You'll become a legend in the Middle East if you do these things. You'll become a king. You can do it in seven quick steps. He did not do that at all. He said to everyone that he met, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come to Jesus. I'm sure with tear-filled eyes, he always got there. You know how when you talk to someone and they have a message that they're always trying to say, every time you talk to them, they keep coming back to the same things? You're always talking about this. You're always talking about this. Well, that was John the Baptist, this. Jesus and his glory and his meaning and his purpose that he gives to people. He said, come, lay down your lives, lay down your agendas, lay down your other definitions of success, and come to him who has succeeded immeasurably. Jesus. That was John the Baptist's purpose. That was the way he went about doing things. Even in John the Baptist's time, even in his time, we did what we do. We make categories for ourselves, and we say, well, Jesus is great, but I want to know how I can really succeed. I like the idea of turning to Jesus, of having some sort of moral framework for my life, of living for a purpose, living for heaven. I like that, but I really want to succeed, too. So, I just want to be successful. That's what they said. You give me Jesus on top of the success that I already want? I'll take that. But that brings us back to the very first thing we said. How do you define success? How do you know whether you've gotten here or here or here? What category do you put yourself in this morning? There's probably 200 and 210 people in this room right now, something like that. And I'm sure that every one of us feels that we're in a certain category. Certain social stratification, certain hierarchies. Oh, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that. The fact is there are two categories in this room. There are only two, and we're going to learn about those only two in just a second. Whatever category you feel like you're in, it's an illusion. It's a dream. Wake up. If you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. I'm about to take out one Kleenex. I brought seven. I figured that was the right ratio. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. It's kind of 
in the second half of your Bible, uh, right after uh, Malachi, right before Mark. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, read this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, John the Baptist is he, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. You can have a seat. Let's backtrack a little bit, because it's always good. Whenever you're reading the Bible, whenever you're reading the Bible, see what comes before, see what comes after. If there's a therefore, find out what it was there for. Look back. If there's a for, as a result of, because, and then, look back. No one in this room, please, ever read Jeremiah 29, 11 again and say, God has big dreams of success for me without reading that whole passage. God's going to bless me and make my seed grow. and Just look at the whole passage. Many difficult things happen when we take stuff out of context. If we go back to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 19, we get a little bit of the background, and for the sake of time, we won't dig in too deeply. But I do want to read this portion. Matthew 2, 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child, that would be Jesus, and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, uh, this is Joseph, and uh, took the child and his mother... And went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, and Archelaus was a bad dude, he was afraid to go there. Joseph was afraid to go there with Jesus and Mary. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So, now we get a little bit more of the background here. This was a volatile time. A difficult time. A time of social unrest and political alliances and upheaval and danger. It was a barbaric time to be alive. God guided... Jesus' path, Mary and Joseph's path, to safety. Judea was a relatively unstable and unsafe place for them because Archelaus was an unsafe and evil and vicious king. Uh, now, John the Baptist was that crazy dude who went there <laughs> even after he learned how dangerous it was. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus were not set up to deal with the volatility of that environment. John the Baptist was up there eating honey and locusts and wearing some kind of animal around himself and running in there. That was that guy. And he went to what's called the wilderness of Judea. 
And this was a place where people actually went to escape all of the volatility. This was kind of like a, not so much a resort, but this was a relaxing place, a place where people could clear their head. Now, it was nothing compared to Atlantis or Schlitterbahn or some sort of, you know, theme park, right? But it was a place where people would go to relax. And the types of people that would go there would be from any culture, any social status. And he went there while they were chilling out there eating their food or drink or whatever they were eating, hummus or something like that. And he said, listen, repent. Jesus is near. His kingdom is coming. Repent for his kingdom is at hand. That was the context. Does that give you a little bit better picture of what was happening in this time? Now, let's tie this back to categories for a second. Because the people to whom John the Baptist was speaking were people of a variety of categories. It would be like going to Mall St. Matthews and calling everyone there to repent. Now, you wouldn't want to do that today. It's a different world we live in. But... When you go to Mount St. Matthews, you get a variety of people, right? You get everyone from, you know, very wealthy, cultured, educated, whatever, people all the way down to uh, people who don't make very much and maybe not as educated, whatever. The, the fact is, a melting pot. This was the world that John the Baptist was going to in Judea, and then he bounced around and he went on tour. He was a hype man without a rapper to talk about God's kingdom going on tour everywhere to anyone. And again, this relates to us now, because just like the wilderness of Judea that was filled with people who were trying to relax, people of various social accomplishments, that's how we are. And you think they didn't struggle back then in the wilderness of Judea with comparing themselves to each other, competing with each other, thinking that other people were higher than them, or they made it farther. We need that message just as much as they did because we struggle with categories. It does not matter whether you're in the desert or whether you're in Alaska or whether you're in a jungle or whether you're in the biggest city in the world. Your heart's going to struggle with categories, making divisions for yourself, and you need a John the Baptist right now. You need a voice crying out in the wilderness right now. You need someone to show you God right now. I need that. When there is an absence of the glory of God in our minds, what replaces it is the need for human accomplishment. When you take away the glory of God, a big picture, a big vision of God, all you are left with is human greatness becoming the best self you can be and competing with others. In fact, you can't even feel successful unless you feel more successful than him or than her. How messed up is that? Now, I know a lot of rich people. It's just part of what I do in my work. And you know what a lot of them struggle with? Comparing themselves to people who are richer than they are. It's ridiculous. I talk to people and say, hey, how's life going? Oh, it's going great, but, you know, he just bought this car. I'm just feeling a little bit jealous. I'm like, what? You have, you have a fantastic vehicle. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. But you know what gets rid of that is 
big vision of God and a big vision that you and I probably have not heard this week. When's the last time you turned on the TV and heard a big vision of God, a need to submit to God, a need to lay down everything and submit to him? I know I did not this week. But I do know that John the Baptist was preaching because he was filled up with not only a sense of the glory of Jesus, he was also filled up with the words of the prophet Isaiah. If you notice in your Bible, there's a section that's a quotation. It says that John the Baptist was preaching not just because he felt passionate about it, but he was preaching to fulfill a prophecy. He was preaching with the words of a prophet who lived hundreds of years before him in mind. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, I want to read for you the passage that must have been pulsing through John the Baptist's mind. The words that he was filled up with as he spoke. You know how sometimes we just get excited for emotion and we don't have any reason behind it? Well, this man had words behind his emotion. You want to see those words? I want to see those words now. And I want those words to clear away my heart, to soothe me right now. I want a big vision of God so that I don't feel tempted to make a big vision of me. That's what I want right now. Isaiah 40 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's God, the God of glory, saying, I love my people. I love my people. He is about to show how immense he is and how much bigger than he than his people he is but he starts out by saying i love my people their sins are forgiven pardon their iniquity i'm their god and then he goes in to the ultimate demonstration of swag a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god guess who that voice who was crying was john the baptist he was like that's me i'm the voice crying in the wilderness Let's do it. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. You know what that means? People who feel low, the people that the world ignores, they'll be made even. The people the world esteems, the definitions of success, the categories of success will be made low. Everyone is even in the sight of God. It does not matter what you make or what race you are, where you went to school. It is all clear before God. I am nothing before God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be and hill made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, Isaiah 40, verse 5, and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh shall see the glory of God together. The victims of injustice, the broken, the oppressed, the hurt, and those who inflicted it. All, everyone, see them together. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the 
flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Does that mean that we don't have value or dignity? No, it just means our value and dignity is here compared to the infinite worth of Jesus, God and his glory. Now this, this truth is what was running through John the Baptist's mind as he spoke. As he broke into the pride of man, the covetousness and the categories that man makes for himself, he was saying, listen, I am speaking on behalf of the God who holds your molecules together. I'm speaking on behalf of the God who runs things. This God blows on human life and they're like grass that withers before him, no matter how accomplished they are. Will you turn to him? Will you repent for the kingdom of heaven? His kingdom is at hand. Will you change? Will you say, I lay down my categories and my glory that I can only keep for 50 years maybe in their time? 40 years of life, of being a little king? And will you trade that for an eternity of experiencing God's glory? That's what he was saying. But I don't think we're convinced. I think we still, we still have categories for ourselves. Even with that message. the mic too low? Oh, thank you. <laughs> These aren't doing it. Wingman. This brother. Wingman. I think that we could listen to preaching about the glory of God for a week and we would still be tempted to think of ourselves in terms of categories. I hate categories. I hate how people put me in a box. And I'm sure you hate how people put you in a box too. It's ridiculous. It's killing us. We're masters of putting labels on people, putting them into groups, assigning them value according to our definitions of value and putting people higher up or lower down within social hierarchies. You meet a person and in 10 seconds you're like, oh, where does he rank? Where does he rank? Why? Why does it matter? My goodness. When God's word says in Romans 1.30 that we invent ways of doing evil, I surmise that it includes our divisiveness in the vein of labeling people and rushing to prejudices about them. Experiments have been conducted by social scientists that show that human beings, unconsciously, have the ability to form lasting judgments about the value, competence, and significance of another human being within as little as 100 milliseconds of meeting them. In case you don't want to do the math, that's one-tenth of a second. One-tenth of a second. That's how long it takes some of us to make judgments about other people. A person who's lived 30, 40, 50 years, and we see them walk into a restaurant or whatever, and in one-tenth of a second, we're already putting them in a category. That's absurd. And I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. People do that to us. We do that to people. It's just the way we're trained. It's the environment we live in. So many categories. 
How on earth can you make an accurate judgment about another human being, someone with decades of complex development, experiences and circumstances in one-tenth of a second? But this is what we do, make judgments about people and try to categorize them before they even open their mouth. Now, while different cultures around the world value different things about people, we tend to categorize people according to how valuable or significant we think they are. And, moreover, we tend to categorize people according to how valuable we think others will think they are. Oh, she's beautiful. The guys will love her. We look at things like financial status and potential, educational status, the amount of people over whom one has influence, beauty and physical characteristics, marital and family status, skills and talents, artistic abilities, and so on. Those are the criteria we use to group people. We conclude that the more one possesses of one, of one or more of these categories, the more valuable or significant he or she is. We say, oh, he, he, he's got a job, and he's got a car, and he looks good, and he's got this, and he's got that. Well, that's, that's 10 points on the value chart. He must be more valuable than him. That's what we do. Oh, she's a 10. She's a dime. If I hear the word dime to describe a woman one more time, but the word of God, the word of God that cuts through all that like a sword is adamantly clear that God, the God John the Baptist was talking about, the God who's holding together your body right now, that God does not view man, does not view man or place value judgments on man based on the categories we use at all. He's in a completely different structure. He operates according to a completely different framework than us. Oh, he's light-skinned, he's less light. No, he does not think that way. What does 1 Samuel 16, 7 says? I'm, I'm sure most people in the room probably know this verse. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the, the heart. The core of who someone is. The part you can't take a picture of. The part you can't easily Instagram. That's what God looks at. While we get caught up with who's hot right now, God does not care. While we worry about whether people will accept us because of the shade of our skin or the texture of our nose or the texture of our hair, God does not care. He does not care. He loves us, he cares about his creation, but he does not care about our stratifications, our this is better or this is worse. He does not think that way. He thinks, oh, I made her, that's how she looks, then, then that's how I made her. Right. He does not care about what we say. While we worry about not earning as much as our friends who are younger than us, he does not care. While we're self-conscious about our appearance or wondering if we look tough enough or comparing ourselves to our friends' Facebook and Instagram pictures and getting depressed, comparing our practice to someone else's highlight reel, you know what I mean? You go on Facebook and you get depressed. Oh, this, this, this guy, this dude, she, oh. But the thing is, they're showing you their best moments. And you're comparing their best moments to what you go through every day. They go through problems too. But guess what? God doesn't care. 
He doesn't care. That's not what makes you valuable. Whatever you're getting self-conscious about, worried about, losing sleep over, and struggling to find your worth because of it, more than likely God does not care and he's not looking at that at all. If you want to change the way you see yourself, change the way you see others, and develop a permanently healthy view of people, learn to view yourself and others the way God does. I'll say that again. If you want to change the way you see yourself, you want to change a lot of that guilt, doubt, shame, insecurity that you might feel, that I feel, you want to change that and change the way you see others, the way you view others and judge and value others and make it healthy and make it right, then learn to view people the way God does and not the way people do. Get rid, get rid of the categories, all of these categories, get rid of them, reject them. I'm not going to submit to those categories anymore. You're asking me to measure an apple by how much an orange it is. I'm not going to do that. I refuse. Stop assuming that because someone's nose, eyes, and mouth are arranged in a certain configuration, they are more valuable. There are people who have said that our daughter is pretty. That she's beautiful even. And I will tell her that. But never, ever, you listening, Audrey? Never will I tell her that she is more valuable because of the way her nose and eyes and mouth and hair look. Ever. Beauty is one thing. Worth is another. And I will tell her that every day of her life. I will tell her that I love her, that she's pretty, that I think she's beautiful, but I will never imply to her that God views her more highly because of the comments she might get. Ever. Stop thinking that God will love you more or that you will be worth more as a person once you get the perfect marriage or family situation. God will not change his view of you if you're single or if you're married or if your family is exactly perfect, that does not define who you are. It's an aspect of who you are, but it does not define your worth. It's not what God is looking at. It's not what God is measuring. Stop trying to, value, to find value in what God has clearly said he does not measure your value by. It's like going to sell your car, and you say to the car dealer, look, I just got a fresh coat of paint. It's perfect. It's candy paint. It's shiny. It's red. I spent $7,000 painting this car, decaling it out. And the guy says, well, that's cool. You know, people like that. But let me take a look at the engine and the transmission for a second. And you're like, well, I mean, you know, it, it runs, but look at this paint, bro. Look at what I did. I mean, you see the detail there. But yeah, that's cool. I respect that. But, but I need to take a second to drive this, test it out, see how the transmission's working. And you're like, no, 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 wait. See, that, that's what's happening with God. 
is we are coming to him and we are worried and insecure and measuring ourselves according to a totally different set of standards when that's not what God's looking at. God looks at the heart. I call this the, uh, the uh, at home on the couch. The type of thoughts that run through your head when you're at home chilling, doing nothing else. That's kind of what God's looking at. When we say heart, that's what we're talking about. The inner man, the part that you don't feel like you have to prove yourself to other people with. That's what God's looking at. So, let's keep things very simple. It's time to do a category refresh. I'm talking pressing the reset button on the entire way we view people. Some of us are so caught up in an unhealthy way of doing life and viewing people that we have to forcibly take ourselves out of it for a second and shake things up. So just for a second, I want you to rid yourself of any categories that you've put yourself or other people in. Just for a second. I want you to do it. I think you can. I think I can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you all clear? Everything's cleared out? Now that you've rid yourself of all the categories that you put yourselves in, I got a new idea for you. I got a new one. This is what we said earlier. There are only two categories of people. Only two. It does not matter what your educational status is. That's not one of them. Your financial status, that's not one of them. Family, beauty, skills, and talents, or anything else, that's not one of the categories. None of that matters. What are the only two categories for every single of the 100 billion or so human beings who have ever lived? You probably know by now, but it's this. Those who are God's children and those who are not God's children. Vince Carter, it's over. Those who are God's children, those who are not God's children. It's done. There are no more categories after that. It's over. It's like Kevin Garnett when he won the, the championship with the Celtics. What are you going to say now? Right? That's what he did. The next time you walk into the mall, the next time you walk into J-Mall, St. Matthew's Mall, Oxmoor, whatever, and you see the thousands of people in there, you can tell yourself, you don't have to tell them, but tell yourself, there are only two types of people in this building. And this is not one of those things from the movies like, oh, there's sheep and there's wolves. There's winners and there's losers. No, 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 no. There's one winner, and that's Jesus, who's already won the victory for us. And then after that, it's simply those who are his children and those who are not. There are rich people who are God's children. There are poor people who are not God's children, who are God's children. They're educated, uneducated. It does not matter. All those are taken out of the picture. What would happen to your life if that's the way you viewed your value, if you said, I have made it, I am successful, I am legitimate because God has made me his child, and nothing else can add to that or take away from that. The most broken, destitute person in the world who has Jesus is infinitely more wealthy than the most wealthy person who does not have Jesus. But the thing is, we're not satisfied with that. We're satisfied enough just to kind of 
be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but what I really want, I want to get God's success and the world's success. Now, some people might get both, but that does not mean you should strive for both. That you should strive to become esteemed highly in the world's eyes. You might make money, you might not. You might get educated, you might not. Do your best. I'm not saying be lazy. But the, the, the truth is, if you are unsatisfied with God calling you his child, something is seriously wrong with your heart. And I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of being discontented, very much so. Knowing that I'm a Christian, knowing that I'm okay, but then wanting to make myself more, right? Wanting to complete myself. Here's how you know when you're living in a contented spirit. When everything that you do in your life, every action you take and thought you think, is to fill up the world with more of God's glory instead of trying to build your kingdom. Right? You could have two people who are saved, two people who are both Christians, but one person is trying to, you know, keep going, keep going really, really far in their career, education, whatever, because they feel discontented, and then another person is going really far in their education and career because they want to extend God's kingdom into the world. Right? Every single one of us who has God's kingdom has a choice to make. Are we going to build on God's kingdom? Or are we going to build our kingdom alongside God's kingdom? Every person who is a Christian has that choice to make. All I know is I'm not going to beat God's kingdom. Mark Zuckerberg, by giving away 99% of his wealth to cure disease, which he's never going to be able to do, right? That's, that's not God's kingdom. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But the fact is, if I make any money, if I get successful, then what, where does that have to go? That has to go to the furthering of God's gospel the training, the educating, the support, the raising up of people to do God's work. That's what it means to take all the world's success and put it toward God's kingdom. But what does this have to do with the kingdom of heaven that John the Baptist talks about? What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Who's ever heard the word, I'm a kingdom person? I'm a kingdom worshiper. I'm, I have a kingdom spirit. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? When John the Baptist proclaimed the need to turn to Jesus, to the people of Judea, he was indiscriminately and with reckless abandon calling anyone of any level of cultural status to lay down their lives and submit to Jesus as king. His message was simple, and it applied to everyone. See, that's the cool thing about God. He's bigger than everyone, so the need to turn to him applies to everyone. John, the, don't ever say I'm not a Christian type of person. I'm just not the type of person that God would love. I've done too many things. No, 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 no. The type of person that needs God is a human being. Okay? Um, John the Baptist was a man deeply gripped with passion and conviction about the supremacy and lordship of Jesus, and he shaped his entire life's work around calling people to Christ. Remember that a man like John the Baptist would have had uh, a range of audiences who carried a range of cultural, socioeconomic, family differences, and he would have looked past all of it. He did not care and gone straight to the only thing that matters, whether or not they were getting on the train toward God's kingdom. 
It does not matter what you've done. Are you on the train? That's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what does he mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, same thing. Don't, don't be like, what, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? No, they're the same thing. It can be described in at least five ways. One, the kingdom of heaven is a primarily spiritual reality, and its building blocks are every heart over which God rules and reigns. It is built over time as God transforms one sinful heart after another and reshapes its desires and guides its actions in the world. So the kingdom of heaven is present here right now in the hearts of every single person in this room who is a Christian. So if you are a Christian, you are a building block in the kingdom of heaven. And God is changing your desires bit by bit and changing your inclinations. And you used to want to do this, and now you're starting to want to do this a little bit more. And, and, and God's using you, your head, your heart, and your hands, your whole life to start changing things from, from the way you talk, to the way you do things, to the way you spend money, to the way you spend time, to the, to the, the, way, the things you do in your leisure time. That's how the kingdom of, of heaven is built, right? It's, it's, it's a spiritual reality, primarily. It's in your heart, and it flows through, and it changes things. Now, one day, it'll be different when his glory fills up the whole earth, right? Uh, but for now, in a world of sin, uh, in a world where most people are not Christians, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, right? That's what Jesus said, and it's growing. It's getting bigger with every new person who trusts in him. And it doesn't die when a person dies. They go to heaven. <laughs> it's part of the kingdom of heaven, by the way. Uh, it's two. It's progressive. It's growing. The kingdom of God is coming, right? It's like when a guy drops an album and he says, oh, it's coming. It's on its way. It's coming. No, no, no. The kingdom of heaven is growing. It's huge now, and it's going to get huger, so big that it inhabits everything you can conceive. It will one day consume the world in every aspect, physical, spiritual, etc., with God's glory when God defeats sin and death. So just as a quick caveat, if a person says, I'm planting a tree and I'm praying over that tree that it will become the kingdom of God, that's not, that's not how it works. Uh, that might be a good thing, right? But God is going to recreate the physical earth in one, at one point later, right? So I, I remember I had a friend in college who said, I'm going to go to Ethiopia and I'm going to plant uh, flowers and, and fruits because I'm going to build the kingdom of God. I said, well, you know, that's good, that's good. But the, 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 the main objective of the kingdom of God is for people to turn their hearts toward Jesus right now. And that's going to change their lives, and it's going to change the things they do. But let's leave it to God to do the big stuff, right? Another person will say, well, I fight injustice because I'm building the kingdom of God. I'd say that's a part of the kingdom of God kind of on the side, right? It's a side project that we should be engaged in. The primary need is for people's hearts to change, and as their hearts change they will slowly change their avenues of influence, their spheres of influence. Does that make sense? Um, so let me give an example. So I was talking to Pastor Nate the other day, and I was saying that I had a conversation with uh, a person that I was doing business with, and this person is one person away. They're on a first-name basis with the CEO of a major bank. Now, think of the power that banks have in this country, right? Immense power. When the bailout happened, banks were called to get this country back on track. And let's say I were to talk to my friend, talk, tell him about Christ and have my friend change his heart. And then this friend were to talk to the CEO of this major bank and change his heart, right? Think of the change that would bring. 
in so many policies and in, in, the, in the, the inner workings of that bank, right? That's what we're talking about. It's like it starts with a heart change, and then it flows into structural day-by-day uh, -day, on the ground societal change. Does that make sense? That's how I, th I think, again, I'm not saying I'm an expert on this, that's how I think the kingdom of God works in, the, in building, uh, building justice out of a changed heart. Um, uh, three, the kingdom of God supersedes all other kingdoms, institutions, organizations, or structures. Uh, it is the endlessly growing extension of rule and reign of God himself, the king of kings, lord of all. As if it weren't obvious enough, the kingdom of God is bigger than the kingdom of anything else. It includes the kingdom of anything else because it's God over the kingdom of anything else. God's rule and reign, there's not one square inch that he does not touch, and he's lord over it. That's what we mean. Um, so, so again, one, it is a spiritual reality. Two, it's progressive. It's growing. It's going to get immense, and it's going to fill up everything eventually. Three, it, uh, it's bigger than everything else. Four, it can only be entered into one way. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven that John the Baptist said, whatever you're doing, stop doing it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's coming, it's here, jump on the train, or it's going to run you over. That, that can only be entered into one way. Not by being a good person, not by going to church, the kingdom of heaven, your place at the table, can only be secured through one means. Faith and trust and submission to Jesus Christ. I'm not a kingdom type person. I'm not a good person. I'm not a Christian type. I'm not a church type person. No, you are a human type person. And human type persons need Jesus. It does not matter. It does not matter what you've done. Who you've been, who you've been with, what depths you've gone to, what dark places in your life no one knows about. None of that matters because God is bigger than all that. And he would love to make you a part of his kingdom no matter what. Do not let anyone make you feel too guilty to be God's child. Ever. You are beloved by God and he will accept you no matter what. Believe that. Without forgiveness from and submission to Jesus Christ, a person is outside of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is set against that person. Wow. The kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God, will either include you or it will crush you. Seek him now, you will know him as Savior. Seek him later, you will know him as judge. He will take you if you want. Anytime. Anytime. Number five. The fifth element, the fifth aspect of God's kingdom, at least according to my understanding, which is very limited, it's an equal opportunity employer. The kingdom of heaven, God's rule and reign, does not care about who you are, where you came from, what family you represent, what society says about you, how much money you make, or any of that. Anyone can enter the kingdom of God at any time, regardless of the circumstances in their lives. Unlike other institutions, the kingdom of God does not concern itself 
with the accomplishments or status of those who want to join it because it's grounded on the finished work of its founder, Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Unlike other institutions, the kingdom of God does not concern itself at all with the accomplishments or status of those who want to join it because it's grounded on the finished work of its founder, Jesus Christ. Jesus built the kingdom. He's building the kingdom. And he asks you to come on. Come on board. Let go of your old kingdom. Don't try to hold on to two kingdoms at the same time. Let go of that one and go. And be part of his. Trust in him. Submit to Jesus every aspect of your life. And say, I want to be your child. I don't want to have my own kingdom for 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. I want your kingdom. While it offers inconceivable and eternal benefits to those who are in it, it is really not about human beings at all. How about this? A kingdom that has nothing to do with people. An institution, a structure that has nothing to do with people. It involves us. We benefit from it. But it's not about us. We don't build statues in heaven. There will be no monuments to the greatest achievers. Lifetime Achievement Award. You get a ring. No, I get a cross. I get a cross to carry all the way there. You can keep your plaques. The kingdom of God does not care about human categories whatsoever because it only cares about one thing. God and his glory filling all reality and fulfilling eternally all who are his. The kingdom of God has one agenda and one agenda alone. That God's glory would fill up everything and fulfill those who are his children. Here's the bottom line. The kingdom of God runs things. It is the power of God that controls reality down to the molecule and carries unlimited and exhaustive authority over all human life. Like Colossians 1 explains, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities will form and rise up and fall down over time. But the kingdom of God surpasses them all. It does not share glory with its competitors. It does not need the approval of man. It is not impressed with the accomplishments and accolades of people it doesn't need. But it wants them. It is the power of God continually unleashing itself in a wave of glory, truth, and purpose. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. Well, let's go. Let's be a part of it. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. I, I'll, I'll be a part of that. But wait, wait, wait. There's one condition. What does John the Baptist say before one enters the kingdom of God? What does he say to do? Repent. An action. An action. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wait. Why, why do I have to turn away from all that stuff? I would love to add Jesus on. I'd love to be part of his kingdom. I don't want to get rid of that stuff, though. Repent. John the Baptist did not simply call people to embrace and submit to the kingdom of God. 
He asked people to do something very specific, repent. He asked people to let go of that 100-pound barbell that you're holding in the water so that you can swim to the surface. That's what repent means. He asked people to stop trying to jump off the cliff and instead walk back toward land. That's what repent means. You cannot serve two kingdoms. It does not work. God is not so serious about sin because he's trying to be mean. It's because he doesn't want you to die. He's asking you while you're inside a burning car about to explode to come out of the car to jump into his instead of trying to drive your car alongside his. You get the image? You're in a burning car of sin. Systemic sin, outer sin, family sin, sin from inside, sin nature, and it's burning. And the car still drives a little bit, it still works, but it's on fire, it's getting ready to explode. And God is right there next to you in his vehicle saying, come, repent, leave your commitment to that way of life. You're going to sin, you're going to mess up, but I want you to turn from it. I want you to have a commitment in a new direction. Hop into my car. Let's go. Don't try to drive alongside me. No, I'll follow you, God. No, 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 no. You will get in the car with me. You will not follow me in your car. What's the significance here? What's the connection between repentance and entering the kingdom of God? Just to clarify, in case anyone in here is unsure, when John the Baptist commands those under his voice to repent, he's referring to repenting or turning from sin, not from bad choices, not from my past, from sin. Turning from that which separates us from God. Now, let's, let's outline the word repentance real quick, okay? Um, in its original language, in the language this was written in, uh, Greek, in this, in this portion anyway, the word repentance is the word metanoia, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A, or M-E-T-E, M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Uh, it, it, it simply means this. Metanoia means change mind. Huh. How about that? The word repentance literally means change of mind. It's, it's not just doing my bad habits less. It's not trying to be a better person. It's not improving yourself. Taken literally, to repent means to experience and commit to a radical shift in the way you think, a foundational change in mindset concerning sin a foundational change all the way to the core concerning sin. It means this is going to kill me if I hold on to it any longer. I'm going to struggle with my desire for sin, but I'm not going to coddle it anymore. I might fall into sin, but I'm not going to make it a part of my life. It is not who I am. How many times have you heard someone say that? Well, 
I wouldn't stop this. It's just who I am. Is a burning car about to explode who you are? It's a change of mind, and that change of mind can only come through faith in Jesus. When you have faith in Christ, when you say, God, I let go of everything, I want you to save me, I want you to change me, I want you to make me a new person. In that moment, God does two things, like two sides of the same coin. He puts a stamp on you, he he fills you up with a new identity, it's called regeneration is the word, a big word, and second, he gives you the tools to turn from sin. In one instant, two-sided coin, he makes you a new creation, he, he infuses you, he connects to you with himself, and makes you his child, and he immediately gives you the tools, the ability to turn from sin. Without God, you do not have the ability to repent of sin, repent from sin. You have the ability to improve yourself, to become a better person, but you don't have the ability to look at sin in a different way. You don't have the ability to recognize that you're going to be killed by sin because it's the only life you know. It's like being a fish in water. It doesn't even know what water is because it's in water all the time. But when God saves a person, he takes the fish out of water, and he turns that fish into a, something else, and that fish realizes, wow, I was in water. That was going to kill me. I might feel tempted to go back to the water because that's what I'm used to. That's what I'm familiar with. But I don't view it the same anymore. Does that make sense? Repentance is fundamentally changing the way you look at sin. It means being changed at the core by God so that you begin to sin less and less because you desire it less and less. You can't stop what you desire. You're going to do what you want to do at the end of the day. Repentance means that God will change not only the way you think about sin, but the way you desire sin. God has the power to make you want it less and less. How amazing is that? That's what repentance is. It's God helping me to want sin less and less. Who in this room can say that there are certain sins that they want less in their life? I know I can say that. There's sins that we all have. Everyone's going to sin and have struggles with certain patterns and dispositions towards sin until the day they die. But if you're a Christian, you should be able to say that there are certain sins you don't want as much as you used to. That's repentance. All right. As we draw to a close, we're going to get to something that's going to rattle you a little bit. Repentance is not a change of actions, it's a change of mind that produces a change of actions. I'll say that again. Repentance is not a change of actions. It's a change of mind and heart engineered by God that produces a change of actions. Many people emphasize being part of God's kingdom, becoming a Christian, and devoting one's life to God without emphasizing repentance. You will see preachers on television and in books and on YouTube tell you, you could be part of this. Just just add Jesus on. Add him on. Like adding on to a house. Without emphasizing repentance. Without emphasizing the need to get out of the burning car. 
Of course, anyone would want that. I'm sorry for the microphone. Anyone would want to add the endless blessings and benefits and privileges of being God's child, but very few would be willing to give up the sins for which Christ died. Christianity is popular in America. I mean, it's popular. This, uh, you know, it, there might be political issues with it and this sort of thing, but at the end of the day, you'll meet a lot of people who will say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I, I think I'm even a Christian. You know, I'm not going to you know, push that on anyone else, but I think I'm a Christian. You know, it's popular, especially in the world of athletics and sports, right? right I, I, talk to, I, I work with guys from the NFL, and you know, it, it's, it's a thing where it's like, you know, it's popular, right? It's, it, it's a thing to be a Christian. It's cool, right? I just give glory to God after the game. But, but how many people are doing this out of addition instead of subtraction? All right, we're going to school. We're going to finish this sermon with school. It's Monday morning already. Many prefer a Christianity of addition a Christianity that allows them to add Jesus and a Christian moral framework on top of a life fully submitted to their own natural desires, instincts, and pleasures. Many would prefer and gladly add Jesus on top of a life where they're doing everything they already want to do. Oh, I'll add Jesus to that? Heaven to that? Yeah. I'll add heaven to that? Sure. But repentance asks for a whole different type of mathematics. Repentance demands a Christianity not of addition, but a Christianity of subtraction. Of faith that is willing to change its mind about sin, delete things the moment that it feels the need for Jesus, get rid of things, reduce things, cut away everything until the heart only wants one thing. That's real faith and repentance. A heart that is willing to run from sin instead of embracing sin as fast and far as it can go and lay down everything for the superior and enduring pleasures of being with Jesus and Jesus alone. That's a Christianity of subtraction. By letting go of my sin, by committing to daily let go, I'm going to hold on to Jesus instead and cling to his superior pleasures, his better promises. I'm willing to say, I'll give up 30, 40 years of sin for an eternity of God's pleasure. I want that more. That's more valuable to me. That's worth more to me. And in my heart right now, I feel the tug of war. Oh, how I feel it. But I want Jesus more. There is no access to God's kingdom without a willingness to turn from the very sins that made God, Je made God shut Jesus out of it for six hours. I'll say that again. There is no access to God's kingdom without a willingness to turn from the very sins that caused God to shut Jesus out of that kingdom for six hours. God shut Jesus out for a reason. Why have you forsaken me, God? Eloi, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's what he said. Because God's kingdom does not add on sin. It does not blend well with sin. 
He hates sin. He hates our sin, but he will forgive it. He hates our sin so much that he crushed himself on the cross. Jesus, fully God and fully man. The image of the invisible God. God crushed him. Because he hates sin so much and he loves you so much. That he wanted us to be part of his kingdom. He endured, Jesus endured God's infinite wrath in his body and in his soul for our sins so that we would have access to his kingdom, so that we would have the freedom to enjoy God as his children. The question for all of us is this. Are we willing to daily turn from sin, run so far away from the line that we can't even see the line? How close can I get? I want to be so far that I don't even see the line anymore. So I don't have to wonder how close I can get. Are you willing to run from it? Are we willing to give up a few decades of the things the world takes pleasure in? In exchange for an eternity of God's full pleasures. Are we willing to ask God to fill us up so full of his glory and goodness. That there's little room left for the pleasures of sin. Are you willing to ask God to fill you up so full of his pleasure and goodness that there's nothing left, there's so little room left to devote to sin. And sometimes I wonder if we really want God all the way because it would mean that we'd have to let some things go. What are you willing to get rid of so that you can get closer? What are you willing to abandon so that you can have more of him? Do you really want to do a 60% Christian life? And 40% other? Well, I'm Christian enough. Or do you want him all the way? I know that I do. I know there's areas in my heart that I want to let go of. I'm committing to and I don't want them anymore. I'm done. I know this. That when I struggle with the insecurities I struggle with. When I struggle with the tensions and the issues I struggle with. What I need to do to restart myself. To put myself back on track is I need to look to the end to know where to start. If you don't know where to start, if you are stuck and you are lost and you're confused and you're insecure and you're hurting, look to the end to know where to start. What does that mean? That means that God has something prepared for his people that no mind can imagine. That means that there's a heaven, a place with no sin, a place with no brokenness, no hurt, no pain, no disease, that God has ready and waiting. And the treasure of heaven is him. He's going to be there. He's going to watch you and, and, and be with you and fellowship with you. And you're going to be with other Christians and fellowship with them. And in heaven, it's not about categories. There's not, there's, everyone's mansion is going to be the same, okay? It's, it's, it's not... Oh, that's the good part of town. Oh, you know. No, 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 no. There are two types of people in heaven. There's God and his people. <laughs> there's just God and then there's just his people. It's just that. Think that way. Reject the categories. Reject the sin that so often defines those categories anyway. Oh, she's a sexy lady. No, 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 no. Forget that all. Forget that. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to turn from sin, turn from these categories, these boxes that people have put you in, these boxes you put yourself in, 
if you want to be part of this kingdom, we're going to have people up here who are willing to talk with you about that, who are willing to pray with you to help you think through those things. I'm up here to help you with that if you need. Today is a day, any day is a day, for you to turn. You are not so far gone. You have not done too many bad things that you can't be saved. You can be, you can change. I know that God is changing my heart every day, and I know that he can change your heart every day. If you are looking for a place to call home, then please be here. If you're looking for a place that's more than just Sunday morning, we have community groups that meet throughout the city uh, most days of the week. Please talk to me or another minister about that because we want you there. We want you to grow to the next level. Um, we'll have our uh, musicians come up, and then we'll have some ministers come up to pray and to speak with you if you need. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that your categories are different from our categories. That, that you don't think the way we do. That you accept people no matter who they are or where they came from. And you can turn people into your people at any point in time. Thank you, God. If there is someone in this room who is hurting, who is feeling insecure, who is feeling put in a box, and ultimately who is feeling far from you because of it, would you send your Holy Spirit in a great way and change their heart? Cause them to turn to you. Cause them to find peace and healing and hope in you. And to let go of the categories and the sin and the brokenness that they think defines them. We need you in a great way, Lord. We need your glory to fill up our hearts so big that nothing else can get in. Lord, we're, we're all sinners. We're all going to struggle in different ways until we pass away. But you can change us more and more over time. Would you please do this great work, Lord, now. Break through the chains and the crust and do a great work in some hearts this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Doors of the church are now open.